So we're in a series called The Week That Saved the World, where we are taking a slow walk through the last seven days of Jesus's life. Seven days that whether, whether you know it or not are the most important seven days in human existence. I say slow walk, but last week we started this series and we moved fast. We started on what is often called Palm Sunday, and we talked about Palm Sunday, and then we talked about the events of that Monday, and then that Tuesday, and then that Wednesday, all the way into the first half of Thursday of what Christians call Holy Week. And we ended with with Jesus having instituted the Lord's Supper and just showing how grace-filled and merciful his kingdom is. And so we're, we're spending about five weeks looking at this week that saved the world, and we're already on Thursday evening. Today, we look at Thursday night, and things slow way down. As you read the Gospels, at this point in the story of Jesus' last week of his life, we enter into super slow-mo mode. Everything from this point forward is in 4K ultra-high definition. Every word, every moment, every second from this point forward gets scrutinized by the Gospel writers and for good reason. Today, we're looking at just a few hours of Jesus' final week, Thursday evening, where Jesus is at the Mount of Olives, and then he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he's arrested, and he's dragged off into Jerusalem. And here's what I want you to take notice of. As we look at these two hours of Jesus' final, say, 15 hours before he dies, as we look at these two hours, you are going to see Jesus utterly alone. You are going to see Jesus beautifully obedient, and you are going to see Jesus completely still. As we look at him in the garden, he is alone, he is obedient, and he is still. And the question I want you to ask is this, as as I describe these events, the question I want you to ask is this, what does Jesus being alone and obedient and being still, what does this mean for me? Okay, what does it mean for me? I went through a a couple-month period where I, I was reading every single biography I could get my hands on biographies of famous performers and artists and leaders and presidents, and I just kind of devoured them, nonstop reading biographies. Uh, One of my favorites was uh, the autobiography of Steve Martin called Born Standing Up, which is an excellent book. Another one I really, really enjoyed uh, was Team of Rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book about Abraham Lincoln and the cabinet that he assembled and uh, his presidency. And and in reading all these biographies, maybe you've noticed this in reading about uh, well-known artists and leaders Uh, and performers, that though they are surrounded by people, there seems to be this theme in almost everybody's life of loneliness. You know, Steve Martin was one of the first comedians to perform to full stadiums. You know, Lincoln was surrounded by one of the most capable cabinets of leaders ever assembled, and yet you get the sense, and they quite explicitly say, throughout it all, they felt alone. And when you read, it becomes obvious why there's such a feeling of loneliness. Because in the end, though they're surrounded by a lot of people, only Steve Martin could stand on the stage and deliver the joke. It was all him, all alone. Only one person could stand behind the microphone. Only one person could get on the stage. Only one person could sit behind the desk and sign the order. You can be surrounded by lots of people. When it comes down to doing the task that you've been asked to do, it just comes down to you. And so you feel alone. Because only you can do it. Jesus leaves the Last Supper, and it's the 11 disciples, because Judas is, Judas is off, off orchestrating the betrayal. 
Jesus leaves the Last Supper with the 11 disciples, and they head to like their favorite hangout, which is this place called the Mount of Olives, where they're going to go hang out and pray. Not Olive Garden. That's a restaurant. Although there is a garden at the Mount of Olives. That comes up later. But there's not unlimited breadsticks here. Okay? So Jesus and, and the disciples, they go to the Mount of Olives, and as they're going there, uh, the disciples say, you know what, Jesus, no matter what happens, we are going to be faithful to you. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. And they say, oh, yes, we are absolutely going to be faithful to you. We're going to stick by your side. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. And then Peter steps forward and he says, oh, yeah, all these other people, they might, they might turn their back on you, but I will never deny you. If I have to die for you, I will die for you. And Jesus is like, oh, Peter, you're going to regret that. Because before this night is over, you're going to deny me one, two, three times. And Peter's like, no, I'm not. And Jesus says, okay, let's see. And so they get to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus then has another idea. He says, let's go a little further. Let's go to this garden next to the Mount of Olives, and we're going to pray there. And in this garden next to the Mount of Olives, there is an olive press, where the olives from the olive grove are pressed into olive oil. That's where the, the garden gets its name. It's called Gethsemane, which quite literally means olive press. And that garden surrounding the olive press is, is a metaphor for what Jesus is about to step into. Because Jesus, in his, in his suffering and his death, he's going to be pressed and he's going to be crushed, right? And so Jesus gathers here in this moment to, to prepare for that. I, I don't know if you, you watch much sports, but if, if, like me, you watch a lot of sports, there's, there's inevitably, at the start of every game, there's the shot of, of whoever the star of the team is sitting in isolation in their locker room, with their headphones on, with their eyes closed, and they're getting themselves ready. And they are envisioning the shots they're going to have to make, the hits they're going to have to execute, all the things they're going to have to do. They're trying to wrap their heart and their mind around everything that's going to be asked of them as the star of the team. And you can see them just kind of trying to get in the moment and work up whatever resources they're going to need to go and be the man, right? You've seen that. That's what Jesus is doing in this particular moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's gathering himself. He's going to pray. And he's going to prepare himself for what's about to come. And he invites his disciples who are going to betray him to be with him. And they say, we're going to stay with you. But what happens? Jesus starts to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they instantly fall asleep. And Jesus is like, told you. Jesus starts to pray, and they fall asleep. And then a little while later, Jesus' accusers come, and they come to arrest Jesus, and, and the disciples are awake now, but once, once it really starts to get tough, once the fire really starts to rise, what happens? Mark says it. They all ran away. And so Jesus is in that moment, though he's surrounded by friends who claim to have his back, Jesus is ultimately in that moment, in the garden, preparing for the cross. He's in that moment a What? Alone, he's by himself. And he's by himself, not just because he's the only one brave enough to face what's coming, although that's true. He's by himself ultimately because he's the only one who can do it. He's the only one who can accomplish what's ahead. He's the only one who can stand at that microphone. He's the only one who can step on that stage. He's the only one who can sit behind that desk and make the decision. 
He's the only one with the authority, with the ability to, to take the wrath of God against all the sinfulness of mankind and absorb it in his flesh and have it accomplish something. And, and anyone who's going to try and help him in that, who's going to try and be a sidekick to him in that, is going to fail him in that. Only he can do this. And so he's in that moment utterly alone. They're either sleeping or they're deserting. It's just Jesus. Alone. In my line of work, I get to um, officiate a lot of weddings, which, which, which is fun. I have, the, I have this habit of, of just before the wedding starts, I will go and I will visit. Just before the wedding starts, I'll go visit the bride in her room and, and the groom in his room. And uh, the, the bride's room is always the fun place to be. It just is, because, because when I knock on the door, it's always a party in there, because by the time that she's got the dress on and the guests are starting to arrive, like all the worrying, all the planning is over, and she is ready for a party, and she's probably already been drinking. <laughs> and so it's a fun place to hang out, because she is excited, she is ready to get married, she's surrounded by her girlfriends, it's a good place to be. And then I go and visit the groom. <laughs> and it's this thing where, like, without fail, it, it feels like, he didn't realize he was getting married until he showed up there that day. <laughs> like something, something magical happens when he puts on the cufflinks. All of a sudden he's like, wait, what? <laughs> and it starts to hit him. And all of his brothers around him are like really serious. Like, you can do this, man. Like, you can do this forever. <laughs> and, then I, and then I step in there to re- like read his last rites to him. And it's, it's just then that he's like really taking in the fact that, oh my goodness, I am saying yes for the rest of my life. And then we pray. So, so Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's kind of like that moment. Jesus is beginning to realize the weight of what is coming for him. Now, of course, Jesus in his, in his divinity, he knew like logically everything that was going to happen, Right? But, but when he's in the garden praying, being deserted by his friends, and, and he can kind of hear the, the, the band of accusers coming to get him, it, it's then that he starts to taste it, and he starts to feel it. And in tasting and feeling this, this wrath of God coming for him, he's going to absorb all of God's righteous anger and God's righteous judgment. He starts to get a whiff of it, and like he, he gets cold feet. Jesus gets cold feet. He, he, in fact, he says, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. I don't want to do it. Now, when he says cup, he's using a, a common kind of ancient uh, first century term for the wrath of God. In, in the ancient world, like Game of Thrones kind of world, it, it was not uncommon, like, if one king defeated another king, but that defeated king was still alive, like, the one king would... Would, would force the other king to drink a cup of, of like, poison as judgment. Like, here's, here's my judgment for how you have hurt my people, and since now I own you, you're going to die. Here, drink my wrath and die. It was called the cup of wrath. And then in the Old Testament, that, that metaphor for the cup of wrath, the cup of judgment, is used to describe God's divine anger against all of the sin of mankind. And so Jesus, Jesus sees what's coming to him in his suffering and his death on the cross as the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's anger about all the sin of mankind put in one cup for him to drink. All of God's anger for everything that's gone wrong, like, like every, 
every act of infidelity, every murderous thought, every murderous act, every, every injustice, all of the racism in this world, all of the, all of the refusal of mercy that happens day after day, all of the, the mass shootings, everything horrible in the headlines, everything dark in your heart, everything bad in your history, every evil that's ever gone wrong, all deserves to be judged by God. God is righteously angry about it, and he, he deserves to, to pour out all that righteous judgment upon all of us. But instead, he took all of that righteous anger and he concentrated it in one cup that he's going to hand to Jesus and say, on behalf of all man kind, drink all the wrath, drink all the judgment, drink all the condemnation, drink it. And Jesus starts to get a sense of all of that wrath and all of that condemnation and all of that judgment that we deserve. And Mark says that Jesus is astoundingly terrified and troubled by it. So much so that he says, I, 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 I take this cup from me. Jesus gets cold feet. Just for a moment, though. Because then Jesus practices what he preaches, and he starts to pray. And if you've been around the church for a while, you know Jesus is teaching on prayer. Jesus quite, quite clearly says to the disciples, when you pray, pray like this. Call God your Father, tell him what you want, acknowledge his power, ask for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And so then Jesus starts to pray as he's, as he's overwhelmed with what's in front of him. And, and listen again to what Jesus says. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, our Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Deliver me from evil, right? Yet not what I will, but what you will. This sounds like thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Mark says that Jesus fell to the ground as he prayed these words. That, that Jesus is on the ground, kind of writhing in the dirt. Remember, he's in a garden, like, a, like an orchard, like a grove of olive trees with a wine press there. He's on the ground, kind of writhing in pain as he prays this, under so much angst and anxiety that he's, he's sweating droplets of blood, according to some accounts. He's writhing on the ground and with gritted teeth and with dirt on his face, almost as he's convulsing, he's praying, Lord, I don't want to do this. Take this cup from me. You're my father. Keep me from this. Yet not my will, but yours. And you get the sense that this goes on for like an hour, two hours. Jesus, looking like he's dying, writhing in pain, wrestling with this that's in front of him. And then at some point, he gets up. And he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he trades what he wants for what God commands. And he's obedient. Now, there is so much to like learn and draw from this moment of beautiful obedience. But just like on the surface... Picture Jesus. Jesus is scared in the face of obedience, yet without sin. So hear me on this. It's okay to be scared as you face what God says needs to be faced by you. It's okay to be scared. doesn't mean you lack faith. doesn't mean you're sinful. doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to be scared. Not only that, but Jesus asks for exactly what he wants. It's okay for you to tell the Father exactly what you want, too. Did you know that? But, but here's the real key. Jesus 
Ask the Father for what he wants, and Jesus is told no. Sometimes God says no. Even though Jesus is God's own son, even though Jesus is God in flesh, even though Jesus is perfectly loved, God still says no. So is it possible that that though God has said no to you about something you really want, that God's not mad at you, that he's not being mean to you, that he still loves you even though he said no to you for reasons that you can't comprehend? If it was true for Jesus, can it be true for you? The moment Jesus stands up, like the moment he stands up ready to take this on, not a second goes by, and, and then there is Judas and this giant band of, of, of soldiers who have come to get him. And they, they've, got, they've got clubs and they've got swords and they've got, they've got like torches and they've come in the dead of night to come get Jesus. And in the modern day equivalent, it's, it's kind of like the, it's like the, uh, how would I put it? Like the anti-terrorism task force. It's like the bomb squad. If it were happening today, there'd be, there'd be a helicopter circling ahead. There'd be people with their, with their iPhones out, like going live to Facebook to see what happens. They've come with an army to capture Jesus because they think Jesus is going to put up a huge fight. Everything, everybody thinks Jesus is going to put up a huge fight. And understandably so, because remember what happened on Sunday. Jesus entered in proclaiming himself as the Messiah King pointing all fingers at him. And then he went into the temple. He flipped over tables and made people mad. And then on Tuesday, he went and he taught publicly and said, you can't trust any of these leaders and this temple's gonna be knocked down. Everybody thinks he's ready for a fight. And so when they come to arrest him, they come for a big, big fight. And what does Jesus do? He just stands there. Doesn't run, doesn't fight, doesn't do anything. Peter has woken up from his nap at this point. And Peter's like, oh, wait, an army's here. And he grabs his sword, and he goes and he cuts off one of the soldier's ears. What does Jesus do? He stands still, and he calms it down. He says, that's not what we're here for. The only thing Jesus does is this. He puts his wrist out like this. And he's still, as they come for him, he's still, as they wrap his wrists in rope, he's still, as, as they put him in line behind all the soldiers and all the horses and they drag him off to Jerusalem. He's, he's still, the only thing you see Jesus do is put his hands out to be tied and then he takes a step toward his own death. Jesus is still. Now, in the eyes of the world, it looks at this, that moment like Jesus was giving up. Jesus wasn't giving up. Jesus was stepping up. In his stillness, Jesus is stepping forward into something that only he can do. If you really know the Bible, if you like really know the Bible, you'll remember like in, in, the, in the book of Genesis when, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden because they've sinned against God and they've ushered sin into all of humanity. They screwed up everything for everybody. When they're booted out of the Garden of Eden and their relationship with God is disrupted and they're no longer allowed in the Garden of Eden, there is this flaming sword of judgment that sits at the gate to the Garden of Eden to keep them from trying to go back. Your sin, Adam and Eve, ruined it. You can't go back to the garden. You can't have a right relationship with God the Father again unless you are willing to enter through this giant sword of judgment. And guess what? You'll be crushed under the sword of judgment. What is Jesus doing by standing still and being carried off into Jerusalem? He is stepping under the sword of judgment that keeps mankind from going back to the garden and having a right relationship with God again. 
He is stepping under the sword of judgment for Adam and for Eve and for you and for me because he knows that he can take it and he can absorb it and he can free us from sin and death and every other thing by standing underneath it. That's what he's doing. That's why he's still. In his weakness, it looks like he's losing, but by being weak and being killed, he is winning because he's under the sword of judgment for you and for me. So that we might go back to the garden and be right with the Father again. Now I told you to ask this question, what does this mean for me? And really quickly, I want to give, this, give you this. Here's what this means for you. Jesus' loneliness means relief for you. Jesus' obedience means love for you. And Jesus' Jesus's stillness is assurance for you. I don't know if you realize this about yourself, but you spend a lot of hours during every single day trying to save yourself from hell. You and I, we define what what we think hell is on our own terms, and then we spend a lot of time trying to save ourselves from it. So hell for you might be getting bad grades. It might be not getting the approval of your parents. It might be having kids who don't cut it. It might be not having a certain amount of money in the bank. That's hell for you. And so then you... You spend your entire day trying to parent harder, try harder, do more, be more popular, have a more interesting life on social media so that you can escape hell and get to heaven. And you ask Jesus to help you. That's what you spend your life doing. So do I. But what we see in Jesus in his loneliness is that Jesus is the only one who can save you from the real hell. Jesus is the only one who can take you to the real heaven. And he doesn't need your help at all. And so that's why he stood alone there, because he stood alone accomplishing what you can't through all your effort. He stood alone there, and he won for you salvation from the real hell, and he's earned for you the real heaven, which is a right relationship with the Father, and given you what you really need, which is not to be more interesting on social media, and not to have great kids. All our kids are messed up because they got messed up parents. What you really need is the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God, and to know that you are forever in his family, and he won that for you. He got it for you, and he didn't need your help. He doesn't need a sidekick. He did it all alone, and his loneliness means relief for you. You're not headed to hell. You already have the gifts of heaven. You don't need so much pressure on your own soul and your own psyche. You can breathe a sigh of relief because the real battle was fought by the only one person who can fight it, Jesus, and he won it for you. Likewise, his obedience, his willingness to drink the cup of wrath is love. Now, you might not see the connection between God's wrath and God's love, but let me show it to you. You might say, I I want a loving God, not a God who judges sin. Well, I'll tell you this. You can't have the love of God unless you have the anger of God because people who love get angry. If I see people I care about harming themselves or harming others, I get angry. If I see people I care about harming themselves or harming others, I get angry. If I see people I care about abusing themselves or abusing others, I get angry. The more I love someone, the more angry I get at that which harms my beloved. And so when God sees us harming ourselves and harming others, because he loves us, he is full of anger, just and righteous, divine anger at all the things that we do to harm ourselves and harm each other and harm our relationship with him. He has to be angry. Someone has to be punished because he has so much love. If you are indifferent in the face of self-destruction, abuse, or evil, you don't love If you don't have anger in the face of those things, don't tell me you love. You don't. 
And so God has righteous anger because he has deep love. He loves you enough to get angry. And then Jesus loves you enough to say, take all that anger, take all that anger that goes to them and put it all on me. So if you are looking for someone who who will love you enough to get to care about everything that happens with you, someone who will get angry for you, someone who will climb every mountain, traverse any ocean, who will never give up on you, who will fight for you. You have found it in the person and work of Jesus and in the Father that he serves. His obedience, his willingness to drink that cup of wrath just speaks unbelievable love. God cares about you that much, and Jesus cares about you that much. Enough to get angry and enough to absorb it. And then his stillness is assurance to you. Very often in your life, it can seem as though God is not active. God is not working. God does not care. You see horrible things happen in the headlines. You see mass shootings in New Zealand. You see rich kids bribing universities to get into schools that your kid get get into. You see the horrible things that happen in your family, the horrible things that happen in your heart, and you want God to do something, and it looks like God is still, and he's not active, and he's not working. But what Jesus shows us in the garden is that sometimes God stands still, and he's still doing his great work. And that even though God looks weak and inactive, God is still working. And that this side of eternity, that is often how God reveals himself. It looks like it's the absolute end. It looks like there's no hope. But God is working through that hopelessness, through that dead end, to bring about his good and perfect will. That's why this side of eternity, you only see the grace of God when you see the depravity in yourself. As mankind, we only recognize our need for God when we see our mortality, when we see our brokenness. Because it's in the weakness of man, in the in the humility of man that we see the depth of our need for God. And very often, when it seems like God is silent, that's when God is doing his greatest work. So you can be assured that even though it seems hopeless, even though it seems like God is standing still, sometimes God does his greatest work when it looks like he's not working. And Jesus Christ is the greatest evidence of that. So be assured that in his stillness, he is still working for you, and you belong to him, and he will bring all things to a beautiful conclusion that brings him glory, you blessing. He will. At this moment in the story, everything slows down, and it becomes ultra-high-definition 4K television. And at this moment, in this this little two-hour window, we see Jesus utterly alone, we see him beautifully obedient, and we see him perfectly still. But if you look closer, you'll see something for you. You'll see relief. The one man did the one thing you need. He saved you. You'll see love. God cares about you enough to get angry about all the stuff in this world. And he loves you enough to absorb it rather than have you deal with it. You'll find assurance. That even though God seems quiet or weak or if he's not working, that he has. And he is. Let's pray.